0: Welcome to Voices,
1: a podcast from the Institute for Human Rights and Business.
0: Here, we're seeking to elevate the range of perspectives on the role of business in the world and in people's everyday lives.
1: Hello, everybody. Um, This is Francesca Fairbairn from the Institute for Human Rights and Business. And I'm talking today to Mark Dickinson, who's General Secretary of the Uh, Maritime Trade Union, Nautilus International. Um, We're talking to Mark today about the uh, updates to the Maritime Labour Convention. Uh, Welcome Mark.
0: Hi Francesca, good to be
1: here. Uh, Mark started his uh, maritime career at 16. He joined uh, the British Merchant Navy and has been a unionist on behalf of seafarers both ITF and at Nautilus for several decades. In fact, you've been General Secretary at Nautilus for 13 years I think, is that right?
0: Uh, first elected in 2009, that's right, when, when the new union was created through the merger between the British Union, Dutch Union, and then later the Swiss Union, yep.
1: And before that, you were, I believe, instrumental in the development of the Maritime Labour Convention um, from the very outset. Uh, IHRB is interested in issue seafarers we've been working on seafarers rights since 2018 we contributed to the UN Global Compact's crew change guidance for companies and I think we'll probably come back to that topic in a bit, a bit and more recently we developed with the sustainable shipping initiative a seafarers rights code of conduct which is one measure towards improving corporate practice and accountability and that code of conduct is based on and goes beyond the Current MLC, the MLC itself. Just brief background: is an international treaty to protect seafarers' rights. Brought into force in 2006, it's been ratified by, I believe, more than 100 countries now. Yeah, just think, past
0: just past the hundred mark. A couple of yeah. uh, last month, I think it's already onto 102. I think
1: fantastic, and um, it represents uh, over 90% of the world's fleet. Yeah. One of its provisions, I believe, is that the special tripartite committee, which is government ship owners and seafarers representatives. That's right. Meet periodically to review and update the convention. And the last meeting was in May 2022. So just passed where a number of changes were agreed. Now, Mark, I believe you played a pivotal role in negotiating these changes. So I wonder if you could just firstly summarise the changes that you managed to push through. Yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. OK. So then that's right. The STC, the fourth session of the special tripartite committee took place in May. It had been split into two parts. It had a previous session uh, online only uh, the previous year when we sort of uh, reflected on the CEPRA's experience during during COVID-19. And obviously the crew change crisis that you've mentioned already. And then there's the session that we held hybrid means we had uh, people in the room and we had people joining us online it was the meeting to to look at. The, the twelve proposals that were put forward, two by governments and ten by jointly by the shipowners and the seafarers, and separately by the by the seafarers. So we tra- we did a lot of work running up to the meeting mm-hmm. um, with our social partner. We have a very active uh, social partnership in the ILO, uh, uniquely, I, I think, judging by. You know what others say about other sectors and how they engage with the ILO and with the employers. So we have a very active social partnership, which predates COVID because that that partnership was really effective during COVID because we we basically fixed all the problems that the government had created by locking out the industry. And again, mentioning the you know the due diligence in this in the supply chain that was really helpful that came out to try and put pressure on cargo owners charters to to uh, find solutions to the crew change crisis. But that that doesn't you know that partnership is is it's not it's not a walk in the park. It doesn't mean the, the employees roll over every time the, the unions just demand something. So we have to work at it, and it's a, it's still a tough set of negotiations. So um, we had we had five proposals that we put forward together. They covered uh, issues like making sure that um, personal protective equipment uh, was appropriate to, uh, well, particularly for women. This has been an issue that's been raised. Uh, on ships you know we've had motions at my own unions meetings about women standing there with examples of PPE that they've been given which is a sort of one size fits all Uh, been supplied to the ship to fit a Scandinavian uh, eight foot 18 stone seafarer and everybody's expected to just wear this stuff so uh, it sounds like a fairly minor issue but actually in in terms of implications and and making the career accessible to women it's really important so that was a that was the first one ship owners supported that that went through fairly straightforward Improving the food that's provided on board and also clarifying that fresh water needs to be provided free of charge because, you know, 2022 and have are being charged for bottled water on ships, you know, because ships water isn't good enough, you know. So, um, again, uh, we were able to improve the, the existing language around that and clarify that, that this should be provided free of charge repatriation so that's when seafarers get sent home at the end of their contracts that's the the sort of normal circumstance but when when ships are abandoned by ship owners when the, this happens uh, all too frequently and covid again has created a new upswing in the in the in, in numbers of cases of abandonment
1: i believe it's and it's third record year um yeah. number of abandonments yeah
0: yeah, so what what, what, we've, what we've been finding over the years, and this is our sort of practical experience, and this feeds into the MLC, the MLC can be updated, which is why the SDC, that's what the SDC is charged with doing, keeping the convention under review. Uh, again, pretty unique in ILO uh, circles for a convention to be amendable uh, relatively easily, if, if, if I may describe it like that. So we were able to make some improvements around the obligations of port states in particular to resolve abandoned ships, And the suffering of the seafarers quickly, and to make sure that any seafarers joining subsequently a vessel that has been abandoned or where seafarers have been abandoned, that the port states make sure that the seafarers that are joining the vessel uh, have access to their rights under the convention. That so you don't create another crew that get abandoned and another crew because port states often insist upon a minimum number of seafarers being retained on board an abandoned vessel for safety purposes, to maintain the vessel as it sits there, anchor or in the port. And this cre- can create a logjam in resolving crew changes quickly, getting seafarers home and back to their families, and paid, of course. So that was an important change to the, to the convention. Medical care, access to medical care promptly. Um, this was one of the issues that uh, you'll be familiar with in, in the work that you did during the crew change crisis. Lots of seafarers denied access to medical care because of this kind of overriding public health concern that many countries sort of invoked to keep ships out to keep crews from coming ashore uh, and infecting uh, the local population or, or uh, vice versa. So this, yeah. was, this, this created a lot of problems during the, uh, the, the, the crew change crisis. And, and perhaps that's of all the amendments I've mentioned so far, that's probably the first one you could say COVID. Yeah. You know, this is directly because of COVID that we brought this forward. So again, we had joint support and we got governments to, to support that. And also to repatriate, you know, when the when the sad and unfortunate circumstances where the seafarer dies at sea, you know, we had basically, I can't really soft soak this one. We had we had, we had bodies in freezers with ship supplies uh for months being pushed from pillar to post, you know. Pretty shocking, but that's 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 the reality um, for that. That had been the experience and the reality, and we were able to tighten the language around that to make sure that, uh, that the flag state or the port state or the, the territory which the vessel first passes into, where they have a dead seafarer on board or where they, uh, they need to repatriate the, the body, that the, that's done so mm-hmm. quickly, and there's an obligation there. I mean, you know, I think if I may just sort of segue into saying this at this point, Many of the amendments that we discussed and agreed during SDCW, you know, strictly speaking, they shouldn't have been necessary, especially around the COVID experience. But unfortunately, the reality said we needed to tighten the language up and shine a light on what had happened and, and demand and seek changes just to make it absolutely crystal clear that these rights and obligations were there and they needed to be respected. And a global pandemic is no excuse. Yeah. Uh, you know, so that that that's kind of, that's, you know, that's the, that's the context in which many of the things that we brought forward. There was, a, there was a technical change we needed to make that the ship owners brought forward regarding the uh, financial security provisions that are contained within the uh, convention. If, if the ship owner needs to be identified on most, if not all, the MLC-related uh, documentation. Unfortunately, the way the industry is structured, there are other parties that uh, play a significant role and PI clubs who provide the insurance, the financial security system. The predominant methodology is through PI clubs. They often contract with the registered owner, who can be different from the actual owner or the beneficial owner, as we often refer to it as. And this is causing problems in ports where port state control inspectors go on board, expect to see the ship owner's name on the certificate saying this is who's going to provide the security and, and it's often not that entity, it's the registered owner and then they detain the ship or they give it a, um, a mark saying that uh, it's deficient and that causes issues down the line. So that's a technical change, which again, we were happy to support in return for the support for others. The next one I want to highlight is social connectivity, which I think is the one that probably piqued your interest initially in in, in, in what we achieved in May. Uh, and that's getting a mandatory obligation for the ship owner to provide basically internet access for communication with home, with loved ones. And again, that would be a COVID. I mean, we have argued and demanded and squeezed the ship owners on, on internet access for as long as the, the Wi-Fi and internet has been been around, um, which feels like a generation now, but uh, the technology hasn't been there or the costs have been high. And now I, I think, you know, those arguments are falling away. The technology is changing at a pace. The costs are falling. Uh, technological advances in the industry to support the, The ship's business uh, means that, you know, the ships have it. And it's a question of can we have a little bit of that bandwidth so that the guys can WhatsApp the families at home? Again, COVID shone a light on that because guys were doing 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 months in some cases, longer uh, in some examples. So that was was an important one. That's probably the, that's the jewel, I think, in in what we achieved. And they didn't give it up easily. It left a little bit of a, Sour taste in my mouth as, as we argued and twisted and turned in the debate during STC about whether there were going to be any charges for that or whether the technology really was that advanced as you know. And, and what are your guys going to do with it if we give it? Are they going to stream Netflix, you know, movies? Are they going to binge watch the latest must watch um, series, season one, two, three? On, 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 on you know, and, and, and actually, it's all about communication. Frankly, I think they should be able to download and stream movies. I don't know why we have to be treated any differently than somebody who works ashore. And I also don't understand why employers, ship owners, don't understand that if they're going to recruit and retain the talent that they say they need for the industry, that this isn't... It's is a human right these days, you know, for, for internet access. And so...
1: Yeah, um, I mean, the way... The, the,
0: but we got it. We got something anyway. Sorry. The
1: comparison I, I draw is that I wouldn't want my boss for example telling me what i can watch on telly when i've clocked off <laughs> and and it's it's very much the same yeah
0: but you know that i think if i'm balanced about it and i, I try to be i'm trying to think about what is what have they got a point is there an argument yeah for restricting access or limiting it and that and i think well, look, what someone watches is is pretty much down to them but if there's any if they've got any concerns about it you know for example, if I go to if I go to work, or use the the Wi-Fi in my, in my office. You know, if I try to Google eBay and pull up eBay, it won't let me. You know, i would be, be a blocked site because they don't want me shopping during during office hours. And you're thinking, so you know, if they think we're going to watch something illegal or whatever, then they can easily set up the systems for that. Yeah, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, my guys are professionals. They know they need to be rested. They they know they need to be fit for their job. There's an obligation in international conventions for them to be so. They've got lots of rights in these conventions. They've also got obligations, which they take very seriously. So I think, you know, those concerns about the, they won't go to sleep, they'll spend all their time on the internet, or it won't be good for their mental health. And I'm thinking, well, it's not good for them not to have it for their mental health. So having, you are going to have it both ways. Yeah. But, you know, some, yeah, some, yeah, yeah. sometimes if you've got greater connectivity with home, the, the story goes well. So when I went to see Francesca, if I give you a real example, it was a few years back. I used to get uh, letters from home about every say six eight weeks maybe maybe longer if we did a long crossing across the pacific so you'd get letters from home and uh, you'd have a pile and you'd have the first one might say oh the dog died really sorry to let you know and there's nothing you can do about it do you know what i mean or or, or your girlfriend popped around and said to stop writing to her. she she's not interested anymore you know we used to we said you get a Dear John letter from, from the other. So those those things were kind of, you couldn't do anything about it because it already happened, you were reading history. Um, the next letter in the palace say, oh, don't worry, Granny's fine now. Uh, she had a minor wobble, uh, I mentioned in my first letter, but she's fine now and everything's good, you know, and, and whatever. So these days with instant connectivity, WhatsApp, you can't do anything about it because you're, you're in the middle of the Pacific or you're in the middle of the Atlantic. And people are say that that's a, that creates a, its own problem. But again, these days that's not seen as a you know, having that connectivity is really, really important to young people. That certainly it's more important for them. It wouldn't be good for them to be isolated. And they won't go to see. It's the first question they're going to ask. You know, what's the Wi-Fi like? You know, yes, can you, exactly. can you connect, you know, and it's still doing me Facebook. I think Facebook page is a bit passé now, isn't it? I don't know it's Instagram, TikTok or whatever it is these days. So <laughs> you just gotta move with the times. And this this is really, really important. It sounds not, but it is really, really important. And I'm glad we were able to to get that over in terms of there being a mandatory obligation to, to ensure social connectivity. And then in the guidance, because the convention is, uh, you know, this the core bits that the STC are concerned about, Code A and Code B, A is mandatory, B is guidance, but it's a bit more than that. It's not like optional, Gu- it's guidance, but it's not optional to follow it. That's what people yeah. misunderstand yeah. about Code yeah. B. You've got to yeah. follow it, but how you follow it, you might find a different way to comply than this, you know, the strict, Pref, uh, reference or guidance that's providing code B so, but it says in the in the language that any uh, charges for internet access, if any, shall be reasonable. And I think the beauty about the English language, at least, I don't know how it translates into Spanish and French, but the beauty of the English language is when you read that, the plain understanding of it is that charges are exceptional, charges, yeah. if any, shall be reasonable. So I I hope that good employers will. If they're not already doing it, let's be clear, there's an awful lot of good employers out there who yeah. provided, and they also provided more in terms of bandwidth and, and data limits during COVID. That's, that was their response. And I think once you do that, I would, I would hope that they didn't row backwards, yeah. you know, now that we're out or with, you know, crew change, it isn't over, but it's certainly less of an issue than it was at its peak. So that was that's an important one. And of course, also the port authorities are being encouraged to provide uh, Wi-Fi access in ports and anchorages as, as well. Uh, and I think if ship owners step up and provide coverage and if they adopt best practice and they want to recruit the best so that they want to be at the leading edge of this type of provision, then the port provision becomes less important because it's on the ship and that's where you're living and working for significant parts of your time. Sorry, Francesca, if I went on a bit, bit long on that one, but um, A couple of areas now where we didn't agree, Uh, we didn't reach a tripartite consensus. And the first one of that was we were trying to tighten up the liability that the ship owner has to protect the seafarers from any monetary loss. Because often the ship owner is not the employer. I mean, that's just the nature of, uh, I would say, it's quite a precarious employment model in shipping for the majority of seafarers. They have a, say, let's let's pick 20% of the labour market is Filipino. Filipino yep. seafarers. They would have an employer based in Manila. They'd be recruited through an agency. They'd sign a contract with that. It's regulated by the by the government agency POEA, Philippines Overseas Employment Agency. And then they would fly overseas. They'd join a ship, and that's where they kind of meet the ship owner. Although again, that's not actually a physical experience. That's they on, they're on the ship that belongs to someone, and it might become apparent who that is. And sometimes the agent uh, doesn't fulfill their obligations, and the convention establishes that there's a, a joint and several liability for that. But that's the kind of theory. Uh, the practice is much more difficult for the seafarers to access, uh, pursue a claim. So we've agreed a resolution, the STC can adopt resolutions, which basically says, Let's go away and look at this in a bit more detail. Let's have another discussion. This sort of informs the future work programme in Maritime for the for the, for the the ILO. So that's an important sort of, we haven't lost that, but it wasn't agreed. So we, we we move on with that. We also were unable, and this is, I think, probably one of the first times that one of the three groups represented in the STC, Seafric Ship Owners Government, outrightly rejected a proposal and that was the ship owners outrightly uh, rejecting our proposal to ensure that when a seafarer is repatriated and if they choose to be repatriated to their home it is their home address that they get repatriated to and that they are covered for all their expenses and they are maintained throughout that journey leaving the ship to knocking on the door and being let in you know by their family so during covid this is another one of the covid amendments that i would i would say during the, that and exacerbated by some seafarers many seafarers being forced into quarantine upon arrival home two weeks or more you know being left on their own to sustain and maintain themselves manila airport walk out the door boom right i'm on my own now many filipino seafarers using that as an example again could spend two days getting from manila to their home i mean there's 7000 islands in the archipelago of the philippines it's just a phenomenally huge uh, country it's not the only example i mean you could you could arrive home in moscow and, and 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 you know russian federation runs from there to vladivostok and and beyond so it's a huge you know seven time zones so that was a real disappointment that really took the wind out of my sails i'm trying to sustain a kind of you know in my summing up speech i was Thinking to myself, can I seriously hail this experience this week, when that that issue wasn't resolved and we saw the ship owners just resolutely just refused to uh, engage on? I, I, I couldn't, so it was a bit of a downbeat assessment that I made of the whole process. The other amendment that, that this is one put forward by ITF, International Transport Workers Federation, on our own was the um, coming back to the issue of the system of protection for seafarers. We wanted to make sure that the CFRAs had the information prior to engagement about how the system of protection works that agents are supposed to have. And that did get that did get agreed. So that's an improvement to the convention. That it's again, it doesn't sound much access to information but that's gonna be really important. And in particular for the trade unions that represent CFRAs to have uh, and to be able to support the CFRAs when, when that happens. Under the MLC, your listeners will have had me mention a couple of times already a, a sort of financial security, which the ship owner is, uh, has to have in place. And that's generally supplied and maintained by PI clubs. So that's the mutual arrangements where they kind of self-insure and cover the liability that each has towards the convention. We wanted to increase the current provision from four months. So it's four months of wages and mm-hmm. other other benefits under the CIFRS employment contract and we wanted to double that to eight and that would be probably one of the first examples of when the convention has continuously improved so it has a standard has a it's a numerical value and we want to improve it so what we heard from the ship owners around that issue was that the current system looks a bit shaky you know in terms of when you quantify in the worst case scenario What the costs of providing the existing provision for a a large fleet of vessels to an operator, they they quantify that and they make sure that they have a sufficient underwriting within the system to cover that off. And when they think about doubling that, the answer was no, we can't do it. And we are worried about the existing system. Uh, the, the sustainability of the system. So what we agreed, I think we were quite pragmatic about that. We said, look, if this, if the existing system is shaky, and we cannot come here and argue for an improvement in the system, then we've got a problem. It's a problem that the governments need to be thinking about because it'll all fall on them if the system collapses. And so there will be. Then this is another resolution we adopted, which will result in a working group. To discuss the financial security system, and with a bit of luck and a bit of fair wind, we can come forward with some solid proposals at the next SDC to to look at
1: that. All right. Well, when is the next um, SDC? So the next SDC, we were in a
0: initially we were in a two yearly phase, but we're now in a three yearly cycle. So we'll be meeting in April 2025. Well, I say April. I mean the beginning of 2025 will be our next session. Was so okay. there's a you know three years uh, work ongoing in between the two sessions. There was a couple of other proposals that we dealt with. If, if, you, if I've got time, Francesca I, and I know you. Yeah. The, the proposal uh, led by Australia was supported by a number of other governments. They wanted; they were particularly concerned about the number of suicides that were being reported again during COVID, during the, COVID, uh, the crew, crew, crew change crisis. And although there was a few concerns about that, about the taxonomy of how that database and the recording the deaths and, that, and who would be the, the who would hold the database. That was all resolved, and we've got a, a broad provision for the ILO to well, call on member states to report, make sure they're investigated, all deaths are investigated and reported centrally into the ILO. So that that went forward, and then the final proposal, which again added to my my sort of sense of despondency at the end of the week, if, if I may describe it like that, was a proposal that was actually brought forward by the um, by the EU group of countries, twenty seven led by France, who currently holds the presidency of the EU, and that was to reduce the maximum period on board provided on the convention of 12 months down to 11 months, which, of course, the Committee of Experts had already uh, stated, and this became very apparent during COVID, the uh, crew change crisis, was actually 11 months to allow for the uh, crewed annual leave to be taken within the year. Uh, so practically, it's 11 months. Um, unfortunately, the ship owners don't accept that, and many governments didn't. But um, in the end, that proposal was withdrawn because we couldn't get agreement on the ex- exception that the, uh, gov- some government and the ship owners wanted so that it isn't an absolute right. We wanted it codified as an absolute right to be yeah. repatriated no later than 11 months. Um, um, to-, to reflect the committee of experts position um, and the generally understood norm we weren't happy about the exception because you know that during COVID-19, during the crew change crisis, force majeure was used as an argument. Uh, and we think force majeure as a concept is generally understood and was understood during the crew change crisis. Unfortunately, you know, there was not a universal acceptance of when force majeure could no longer be used. I might mean, say we as ILO, special tripartite committee we have a bunch you know we have officers elected by each group and we meet uh, as the officers of the sec and we did throughout the crew change crisis we agreed that force majeure no longer existed within sort of three months of the of it you know of it being breaking out in march 20 whenever it was so and um, the french proposal for the eu23 was a bit troubling for us because it did tr- try to codify an exemption and, and I'm, I'm a, you'll you'll appreciate i'm sure and many of your listeners will that once you codify an exception, the risk is it doesn't become an exception anymore. It becomes a norm. So somebody say, ah, there's a provision here. We'll use that uh, because yeah. there's, you know, this has happened or that's happened. And it's a bit inconvenient for us to do the group change. Now, we, so we were very wary of that, but the wording that the EU group had come up with was quite strong in terms of that. So we could live with it because we thought, you know, getting it in as 11 months and, and, and resolving that argument would, would be important. Um, but in the end, we could not get agreement around the wording. And there's this incredible photograph I've got. I'll share it with you one day, which shows the track changes and all the twisting and turns. And, and it was like a flipping rainbow. It all had different colours to reflect all the different points coming in. And in the end, I refused to bend. So we just we walked away from that. So that issue will come back at SDC5, I suspect. But, you know, by the time we get to STC 5 I'll be thinking, well, why should it be 11 months? Yes. <laughs> Let's have six months, shall we? Let's have an argument about six months. You know, I'll create a few jobs and improve uh, recruitment. Anyway, I mean that—that's I mean, there was other, another resolution also, which I should mention because it's really, really important issue, which is on sexual harassment, uh, uh, bullying, and violence on, on bloodshed. those are big, uh, very uh, high-profile cases in the United States. So the United States, who haven't actually ratified the MLC, I think they should get their fingers out to make that political point, but um, they brought forward this issue and the, the resolution essentially said that this should be picked up by the ILO and the IMO, International Maritime Organization, and there should be joint activity on that, which we were absolutely 100% behind, that ship owners were behind, all the governments got behind that. And that's, again, another piece of work that will now go forward and will inform, no doubt, what the ILO and the IMO will do on this issue for maritime going forward. So really important. And probably after all of that, uh, you know, after the month or so that's passed, I was uh, rather harsh on the whole on the whole process uh, in my summing up. But I think one of the questions you wanted to ask me, if I could kind of jump in and just carry on, is what's what's missing? Um, and I, th- I think, you know, the, as, as the CFRS group and as the spokesperson, we work continuously on the MLC. And we we had a short, medium, and long-term strategy developed over the past two to three years. What we brought forward at STC four was our immediate priorities, thinking about COVID and the crew change crisis. We have a broader and longer-term plan for how we can improve the convention, because the convention, when it was adopted in 2006, it was essentially a consolidation exercise, right? So there was a lot of we, we all have to behave ourselves because there's lots of things we could have improved on that and lots of things that are not in it that we we, we wanted in it. There's nothing about pensions and saving for retirement is, is for, for one thing. Criminalization of CFRAs is also something that is not in the convention. And that's something that they face on an ongoing basis. So, you know, the understanding was, look, let's let's stick to the goal of consolidating essentially the 39 maritime instruments and all the resolutions that went all the the recommendations that went with those conventions, and then we will work together in good faith, reach consensus about how we can continuously improve the convention, so those minimum standards become the the MLC becomes a passport to decent work for seafarers. And what I detected particularly during STC for both part one and part two in the immediate aftermath of the crew change crisis is that the ship owners have lost their way. and I think this is what's really important about due diligence in the supply chain and other stakeholders, other businesses, the global compact and others saying, hey, hang on a minute, you know, what happened to this journey towards decent work? Why are we talking minimum standards? Because these are pretty basic asks, this convention. It's not you know, say not groundbreaking, I mean, uh, silly to say that because it was hugely groundbreaking back in 2016, yeah. you know, the first time uh, well, we called it the SEFRA's Bill of Rights, but it is it is just a collection of minimum standards. So how do we move that on? You know, how do we improve the lot? COVID showed us that CIFRAs are key workers. Um, what does that mean, though? What does it mean? Is it just two words? Just, oh, you, you know, great key workers, so what? Like, amongst all the other key workers who, who kept... Things moving during during COVID, but but the problem is the reason we're all in we're in this global uh, economic chaos right now with raging inflation in many countries. Certainly in my own, I'm sitting here looking at RPI 11%. It's because they they basically shuttered up the global supply chain. There's a direct link to what happened during COVID and the mess we're in now. You know, and and what frustrates me is I'm not sure we're going to learn these lessons and fix things, make sure we don't do it again. So when you say CFRs are key workers, that's got to mean something. Let's move them on from minimum standards. Let's say they deserve better than what they've got. They deserve to be recognized. They deserve to be, yes, acknowledged, and that, and we need to fulfill our commitment to continuously improve the minimum conditions in which they're employed globally. Problem with minimums, they become maximums, and they erode higher levels collective bargaining agreements. So, you know, what, what I want to see from the due diligence in the, in, in the supply chain with people is first take responsibility. Take responsibility for that and question, who am I doing business with and what what is their commitment to human rights in the supply chain? Now There's a contemporary example I could give you right now. You might have heard a Pino Ferry sacking 800 seafarers yeah. in the UK, right, over a Zoom call. And the government has brought forward nine measures right I don't know why they didn't make it 10 frankly Francesca but anyway nine measures they brought forward and one of them was we're going to make sure that the minimum wage is paid uh, in the ferry sector in UK ports and they the easiest way they could do that they would said was to amend the harbors bill and ask the port operators to check if the ships in their port are complying with the law and you'd you'd think to yourself any ordinary person on the street would say Well, you wouldn't do business with someone who's breaking the law, would you? Wouldn't wouldn't that be okay? But the ports industry here is going nuts about this. Absolutely apoplectic they are about the fact that suddenly they have a responsibility to check that the ships sitting in their ports are complying with the law. And I just can't get my head around that. I'm thinking, hang on a minute, have you been this last two and a half years? This is just a fundamental requirement. Businesses need to take responsibility for those they have relationships with commercially. investors are doing it the investors are asking everybody right what's your esg Come on, and this the s in the e and the s and the g is is the seafarers it's the social aspects come on you know and that's a big that's what that's what's missing for me
1: the code of conduct that we created with the sustainable shipping initiative there sits behind it a self-assessment questionnaire where ship owners themselves can look at and so you know what you describe as minimum becoming the maximum so they can move away from that and see how they can improve on each of the or 53 i think it is points in their code of conduct that they can look and see what's basic what's intermediate what's excellent and they can see themselves and each each element has you know three or four different examples of how you can be um you know providing social activities or the kind of levels of shore leave or ensuring that shore leave enough shore leave happens or or whatever part of the code of conduct it is so that ship owners can see how they can improve and they can see the next step up in in that kind of constant improvement that you talk about and um I guess that kind of brings me on to the last question. I mean, you know, our, our code of conduct is voluntary at the moment. It, you know, it relies on ship owners and operators to be transparent, to be honest, and to be on this journey of improvement. And I guess so, my last question to you would be um, just about what what else is needed to increase sort of transparency and accountability in the shipping industry. And I guess that would include it's, it's a very arcane <laughs> employment model, you know, ship owners, uh, uh, sorry, seafarers, as of as, course, as you know, Mark, um, might be from one country, um, employed by a crewing agency for a ship owner based in Switzerland for a ship that's flagged for convenience in another country. And they might be on international waters for a large majority of their time. So finding out who's responsible should they be seeking remedy, for example, for an issue is is very difficult. And obviously that's where unions are so important and collective bargaining agreements are ensured aboard ships that are flagged under countries of convenience. But I wonder just finally where you see the the next big opportunity or push or need for um, accountability will come from in the shipping industry.
0: Well, that's a that. I mean that that is um, it's a big question. And yeah. uh, I, uh, what STC four was in two parts. I think I mentioned that earlier. In part yeah. one, we adopted important resolution which kind of reflected on the experience during during the COVID nineteen pandemic and the crew change crisis. And it's a lot of lot of stuff in there, and it recalls a lot of very good work. The ILO governing body resolution, the UN General Assembly, uh, everybody, WHO, everybody had, had said lots yeah. of very well-meaning things about shipping and CFRAs and their importance. But there was one sentence in there that said, summarise it, it said that the SDC called upon the ILO governing body, the ILO ILO Secretary General to invite the governing body to write to the UN uh, Secretary General calling on him to convene an ad hoc interagency task force to understand, these are my words now, what happened and what went wrong why did we get in this mess? And my hope for that is a, no uh, real, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not uh, naive, but I, my hope was that the fact that the industry is so invisible, uh, there is lack of transparency, the fact that there is precarious employment, the fact that the ship owners come from one group of countries, register their ships in another bunch, bunch that usually the oecd gets very excited about because they're also tax havens and you know uh, they have no enforcement they can't Flag enforce right it's- flags flags of convenience absolutely and the crew come from another set of countries and and then we wonder why we get in these messes because actually no one gives a monkeys you know frankly bluntly no one cares so that you know the the american ship owners who found themselves in difficulties, who went to the, U- the US government and said, help us. And they got told, well, why are you in Panama? You don't employ Americans. You're not based here,
1: yeah. you don't
0: pay tax here. What do you want from me? You know, your hook. I think the UK government gave British ship owners a slightly a better hearing uh, in terms of, you know, supporting their, their companies. But this is essentially the problem. We've got deregulation writ large, we've got a, you know, no accountability and the ship owners are even starting to realize this. I mean, there was a guy who, um, I think he's the boss of Euronav, you know, kind of fessed up and said to this international conference very early on in the crew change crisis, guys, we brought it upon ourselves. We've hidden away in tax havens. We've not wanted to be regulated. We don't want to be taxed. And now when we need help, who do we turn to? What's the point of a Panamanian ship, a ship owner who these ships in Panama, turn into the Panamanian government and say, sort out the crew change crisis, because they can't, they can't do anything. No one listens to them. They're not important. They don't have a Navy. They don't have embassies in every port. There's just nothing they can do. You know, it's just, you know, you think, holy cow, you wouldn't create a system like this if you'd thought about it. So how do we put all that back together? Well, we've got to shine a light on it. We've got to be open. We've got to have that conversation. We need to put these pieces back together. So we've got this transparent accountable. I think ESG is the answer. I think investors, I think those who like Unilever or, or, or whoever um, in the global compact who say, guys, we're the facilitators of this because we, we put our cargoes on these ships. We've got to ask this question. Is this good for the world? Is this good for the environment? Is this good? For I, what I care about, is this, this good for the sea folks?
1: I I think um, also there are banks that, you know, there are there is a kind of group of leading banks who are looking very closely at the ships that they are investing in. They won't finance them. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So
0: I think that's a this is that I'm a very optimistic person. Hopefully I, I, I haven't dissuaded you otherwise during this interview, but I'm very, very hopeful that what you've just highlighted, the banks, the big multinationals are starting to have they are it's clear they are they're yeah. asking these questions we cannot invest in these dirty ships we want environmentally friendly ships we can't invest in ships who don't treat their uh, within ship owners who don't treat their crews appropriately and this then becomes you know a, an active and live conversation ship owners start asking themselves well why am I hiding in the Cayman Islands? Why don't I go back to the UK? Why am I in Panama, Liberia, marshlands? Why don't I go back to the States? Those governments need to be prepared to have a conversation with those ship owners and say, what do you need from us to run your business? They're not going to come back if you're going to say, oh, by the way, here's 16 tons of regulation that you're now going to comply with. You know, to, you
1: know, that's why they're out there. And I think that um, from from our experience, and we, you know, we tried to sort of sit between between government, between um, civil society and businesses to, you know, encourage collective action and so on. From our perspective, I think the crew change crisis shone a light on a part of their operations and their supply chain that, for example, brands, cargo owners, just had no visibility of and therefore no real knowledge of and 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 there are a lot of companies going wow you know because it, it's not kind of part of the obvious tiered supply chain shipping you know it's not the product it's just how the product gets to them and in our experience certainly some you know big global brands are going help gosh we, we you know it, it, it's an oversight not a deliberate. I, uh, ignorance, I think, and they're they're looking. Some are looking. At least they're looking very hard to, yeah. to even just get visibility in the first instance of who is carrying their cargo and whether whether those ships have collective bargaining agreements and so on. That's
0: right. I think, and that and, that, and that's been my experience as as well. It's just that we are literally invisible. You know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And,
0: and that hopefully, that if, if there's a silver lining, if one could say that about an experience as shocking as the. As COVID-19 has been for the world and the crude change crisis, as bad as that was for sea for us, if there's anything good comes of this, it's we're now out in the open and people can see. The problem is we can very, very quickly slip back into old ways and the ship owners and the, the industry just sort of prefers to be invisible, prefers to sort of operate under the radar. They don't want all the attention. And uh, my job in my my small way, as much as I possibly can, is to make sure that doesn't happen. Make a lot of noise.
1: Yeah, and I think um, from IHRB's perspective, working with the industry and civil society together, you know, with governments to just keep the issue front and centre and keep pushing for improvement in the seafarers lot. So thank you very much for talking to me, Mark. That's been so interesting. We'll continue our work together. Good luck with STC5, and I imagine the build-up for that has already started.
0: Yeah. <laughs> And can I thank you as well for, for, you know, being interested in in what the industry does and for all the work you've done to help us, uh, particularly over the last couple of years. I really appreciate that. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today.
1: Thanks very much, Mark.